When I was six years old, I remember being at my grandmother's house, and it's a very vivid memory. We were in the kitchen, she was making cookies, and I was at the kitchen table, and I wanted some cookie dough, but apparently it's not healthy to eat cookie dough before you put it in the oven. And so I'm sitting at this table. I mean, I can see behind me, there's the sink. And above the sink was this window with this window ledge. And it had these um, California raisin figurines from Hardee's yeah. that you got in the late 80s. You was having a collection on there. I don't really know why, but I remember the California raisins. And her uh, Bible was on the kitchen table. It was open. She had been reading that morning. She was very spiritual. And she was open to James. James 1 was there. And so I devised a plan. I thought if I could memorize um, what she had underlined, because I had heard memorizing scriptures a thing, then maybe I'd win some favor and get some cookie dough. So, you know, look down, James is open. She's got verse 2 and 3 underlined, I'm thinking. It's already that good, two, three verses in, she's underlining things. And so I come across this verse that says to consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And so I'm working on that and I'm, I'm uh, uh, memorizing. It takes me a few minutes to, to memorize. And she looks over and sees that I'm reading her Bible. So she asks me, you know, grandson, what are you, what are you doing? So she comes over and I stand up and I deliver, you know, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. James 1, 2, and 3. I, I got some cookie dough, for the record. She immediately told me how important this verse would be for the rest of my life, and how life is full of problems. And as followers of Jesus, we have an opportunity to consider hard times, uh, times where we can grow and learn, and we actually have cause to rejoice and change the way we think about hard times. And then she said, you know, in 30 years, you're going to be pastoring through a pandemic, and you're going to be talking to people through the internet that Al Gore creates, and you're going to be needing to tell them about this great news that is in James. Of course, she didn't say that, but uh, most of that story is true uh, up into, you know, the 30-year part. James is a huge uh, book for us to study right now. It's only five chapters, and it's super practical, but it's filled with tons of wisdom for people who are living in hard times, which I think we would qualify for. So I'm excited to um, kind of push off the dock today gently and begin what I think is probably 12 or 13 weeks studying this letter that James wrote in the first century. Um, you know, when you go on a vacation, you, you do some, some prep work. You try to see what's going on and what to see, where to go, what to eat. You get a, this broad view of the landscape. I want to do that with James today. We're not going to jump into the book necessarily and start picking apart some things. Um, but I want to paint a broad brush stroke and just kind of show you kind of where we're going to be living for the next several months. Um, in order to do that, I want you to envision three chairs in your head. Uh, in one chair, there's the author, James. And then in another chair, you have the audience, the, the people that James wrote to. 
and we get the privilege of getting in the third chair and we can kind of sneak the chair up in between the two chairs and eavesdrop and listen and learn and glean from what James is sharing with his intended audience. So to begin our study in James naturally, let's turn to the book of Ephesians chapter four, because that's always how you start a new study is you go to a different book first. So uh, we'll be in Ephesians 4, just read five verses, not really gonna unpack it, but I wanna offer Ephesians 4 as this kind of picture frame for us to um, look at James through. If you are following along on the Bible app and our notes there, there's a link in the description. You can check that out, we'll have it on the screen. Um, but Ephesians 4 is pretty awesome in its entirety. Um, but we'll start in verse 11, which is a very familiar quote that pastors quote all the time. Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One of the great kind of takeaways from that is that kind of the, the, the leaders of the church, so, so to speak, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, um, our job is not to do all the ministry. Our job is to build people to do the ministry. Uh, I, do, I do plenty of ministry. But really, the beautiful thing about the body of Christ is we all have this calling to build one another up, to love one another, to make sure everyone is, is walking in a way of maturity. There's nothing wrong with being a child, but there's everything wrong with being a 30-year-old playing in a sandbox by yourself. You know, you call the cops if you see a 30-year-old man in a sandbox playing with toys. Like, something's wrong, right? There's nothing wrong for kids to do that. Um, but if you're 30 and you're still doing it, there's a problem. So, so Ephesians paints this for us, is that we are to um, love one another, support one another, build one another up, uh, grow in love, that we actually um, are knitted together and we're, we're, we're kind of joined together. So I love that imagery that Paul gives us in Ephesians, and, and it brings me to, to James, because um, James is going to um, address some of the things that keep us from growing up into kind of the mature stature of Christ. Remember those chairs I asked you to think of? And the first chair is the author of this book, James. Now, James was a very common name in the ancient world. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of people associated with Jesus that had the name of James or their dad had the name of James. Um, but this James that authored the book, James, is the half-brother of Jesus, or I always affectionately say that he was the bunk brother 
of our Lord. He knew Jesus very well, uh, you know, longer than presumably most of the other disciples. And yet, the scriptures say he wasn't a believer prior to the resurrection. There's some accounts like in Mark 3 and in John 7 where his family is trying to get Jesus and, and they, they think he's lost his mind, they think he's beside himself. Or Even John 7 verse 5 says that not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus' family thought that he was you know, a lunatic or that he had some problems. And James, the writer of this book, was right there uh, in his family. Now, what happened? What caused... James from going from what John 7 writes about to a writer of a book of the Bible. Well, the resurrection happened. I mean, something happened that changed James's life forever. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, we learn that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. I mean, imagine the honor of having a private encounter with the risen Lord James, his brother, was one of those. Shortly after the resurrection and the ascension, um, in Acts 1.14, we find James praying in the upper room with the disciples. Now, what's interesting is on Monday, Thursday, the disciples are with Jesus in this same upper room um, for their last supper, but none, none of his family's there. His brother isn't there. But then because of the resurrection, James is in the same upper room with those same disciples, and now they're praying, they're waiting um, for the Holy Spirit to come. When Peter was delivered from prison in Acts 12, verse 17, he sent a special message to James. In Acts 15, we see that he's moderating this contentious religious trial, and he's able to hear from lots of people and their points of view. It's obvious to us, to any student, that James quickly became a key leader in the church in Jerusalem. Paul even called him a pillar, what a nickname, in Galatians 2, verse 9. Now in the year AD 60, AD 60, he wrote this letter we're going to study um, to encourage Jewish Christians about 27 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. Two years after that, in the year AD 62, he was martyred for his faith in his big brother, Jesus. And he even died in a similar fashion, praying for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. So James has quite an interesting testimony, going from skeptic of Jesus and calling Jesus someone who's out of his mind to uh, 27 years later, giving his life for the brother that he had now come to know was his Lord. So that's the guy in chair one. Chair two, who's the audience? that's in this chair receiving. Well, as James says, uh, he, he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, or other translations say the scattering. Uh, God's people were dispersed or scattered because of persecution in the ancient world. You could kind of call it maybe a form of um, geographical or social or spiritual distancing. They could not gather together in their organizing principle because um, of a tough time. So um, these are uh, the people that James is writing to. I think we can relate sort of on their level. Now we get to get in this third chair and pull it up in between the two. And if you look at the content, you see that this church that we're kind of eavesdropping on was dealing with some significant issues 
Some are going through difficult testing and suffering and having um, a hard time um, coping with that. Some are f facing temptations to sin. Some believers were showing favoritism to people who were rich. Some were being taken advantage of by the rich. Some Christians were competing for positions of power and influence in the church, especially positions of teaching and authority. Some were hypocrites and didn't live out what they declared that they believed. Some had a problem with controlling their tongue and saying things that weren't helpful, and as a result, causing division. Some loved the world more than Christ and his kingdom. Some were disobedient to God's word and were sick physically as a result, and others had strayed away from Jesus and his people. You know, things that none of us have seen or dealt with in the church or in life. Now, at first glance, this sounds like a buffet of random issues that don't have anything to do with one another. But as we will soon learn, the underlying issue and common cause of everything that James was speaking to was spiritual immaturity. The thesis and the theme of James's letter is what should the natural works or fruit of faith look like? And we might rephrase that and, and ask, what does it look like in real terms to be a healthy and mature follower of Jesus. Think about that. What does it look like in real terms to be a healthy and mature follower of Jesus? Warren Worsby on this subject wrote, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in churches today. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. After well over a quarter century of ministry, I'm convinced that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches. God is looking for mature men and women to carry on his work, and sometimes all he can find are little children who cannot even get along with each other. Amazing. You know, when people find out that I'm a pastor, uh, one of the first questions they ask me is, how big is your church? Or how many people do you have? I get this question all the time. And, you know, I've kind of wrestled with that a bit for, in one sense, because that seems to be the, the measure of how successful churches. Interestingly, what I found is most people want smaller churches because they can be numb. It seems to be uh, pastors are the ones who want big churches most of the time. But I've been thinking about what do I want? I, I honestly don't want a big church. I don't want a small church. I don't want a medium church. I don't want a hipster or millennial church. I don't want a liturgical church or a young family church or an affluent church or whatever label you wanna put on us. If you push me, what I want is a church that is healthy, that is growing, and that when you visit it or are in it, you feel and experience the blessing of God Almighty. Now, I would take a healthy megachurch over an unhealthy microchurch every day. I would take a healthy microchurch over an unhealthy megachurch every day. The size is not really um, what I think about in those terms, I, I am more interested the more I follow Jesus and the more I experience his people in health and maturity and are we 
growing and, and, and is God getting his way with us? This is kind of what was behind the t-shirt that uh, Tanner designed us in the fall that's kind of inspired by the big oak tree that's outside the school is, you know, we, I want to be rooted and growing. I want to be um, this, this stable uh, fixture in our community that when you need to encounter health, uh, you can come and sit in the shade and, and find health, find rest, find that we're not going anywhere. I would rather be a rooted and growing and healthy church than some flavor or, or arbitrary size. I think the question for us in this season, both individually as people and also as a faith family, is um, what is the Holy Spirit uh, doing in our life? Uh, where does God desire to grow us up? I think we could ask that question daily. You know, maybe you ask that question when you drink your coffee or whatever in the morning is, God, how do you want to grow me up today? I want to encourage you to engage with the hard work of examining your own heart and examining your life. Now, don't do that by comparing yourself to others. Sometimes we um, will we'll, we'll take somebody, usually that's less than, and we'll, um, we'll, we'll judge us up or we'll, um, I forget the term you would use, but, but we, we judge ourselves according to, oh, the left person does this and I'll do that, so I'm good. Uh, that's not the standard. Uh, the standard is that we ask the Holy Spirit to line us up with the Holy Word of God. And where there isn't alignment, we invite Him to come and change us. And so I offer that to you over the next couple of months, is to come to the Word of God and, and come asking the Holy Spirit to say, you know, what needs to grow? What needs to change? Where does He want to do work in your life? Now, when it comes to spiritual maturity and immaturity, James gives us at least five marks or five signs of, of what that looks like. So this isn't exhaustive by any stretch. Um, it, it's just scratching the surface, to be honest. But we can look at James's letter and look at the five chapters he gives us, and we can come away with just five signs of someone who is spiritually healthy and moving in the direction of growth and maturity. And, and also, we can take the inverse of those and we can find five uh, signs or marks or indicators of immaturity or maybe where growth has stalled out or where maybe there's a blockage in the, in the process or where maybe you've become distracted or maybe where there's lots of pain and you don't want to touch that. So we're going to look at these five different lists. Um, the first one, five marks of someone who is spiritually mature. Again, not exhaustive is number one, you are patient when under trial and testing. We get that from James 1. Number two, you practice the truth. You are a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Um, number three, you have control over your tongue. James 3. Four, you are a peacemaker instead of a troublemaker. James 4. Number five, you are prayerful in times of trouble. That's James 5. Now, in contrast, we can take those marks and flip them, and we can find marks of immaturity. Now, as we go through this, no guilt, no shame, because we're probably, if we're honest, all on this list in some way, shape, or form. So let's just be honest about where God wants to grow us up. The first is you are impatient when there are difficulties, sufferings, trials, and testings. Do you complain when life is hard? 
Are you looking for a never-ending vacation? Um, do you resent um, the pressures and the, the refining fire that may be in your life? It could be a sign of immaturity that God wants to highlight. Number two, you talk about the truth, but do not put into practice the truth. This is the world's greatest complaint against Christians is that the Christians are hypocrites. We don't do the things we say we believe. Perhaps the world finds that true in a lot of Christians because the world meets a lot of Christians who have stalled out and are kind of stuck in neutral when it comes to their sanctification or their transformation. Third, you have no control over your tongue. Exhibit A, social media. Fourth, you bicker, fight, and covet. And fifth, you find security in collecting material toys. Now again, this is not an exhaustive or comprehensive list. These are just two very, very short lists we can create off of the scope and sequence of James to go, where is their maturity that I can celebrate and keep? And where is their immaturity that I need to dig in? Now, no condemnation, no judgment. If you find some marks of immaturity in you, as I said before, we probably are all on this list in some way. But I want to encourage you, don't stay there. Take this as an opportunity to grow up. Uh, hear uh, the invitation of the Holy Spirit to come and transform your life. Surrender. I want to share the gospel with you by talking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther hated the book of James. He didn't consider it canon or inspired. If you had a book uh, if you had a Bible from Martin Luther, James is probably cut out. And it was because he lived in a day where the religious hierarchy promoted works-based salvation. In other words, uh, they, they believed that um, and, and taught that you're only saved and loved by God because you do good things. And so because James is super practical and emphasizes that um, faith without works is dead and, and, and that faith gives birth to works because it really emphasizes that it's it's easy to misread James and think that you have to do all of these things or be spiritually mature and healthy for God to love you, which is not what James is saying, but it's easy to read that. And so he was kind of in this far extreme ditch of a time where the gospel was not known or widely proclaimed. And, and in fact, it was a works-based religion. And so he, he hated um, James. Now, what I would say to that is there's a big, big de detail that is missing or, or that, that we overlook when we come to that conclusion. James was writing to people who were already saved. He was writing to his brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the dispersion. So in the mind of James, I believe that he, he's, he's already saying, oh, you've already been brought to life by the resurrection power of Christ. You've already been born again, as maybe John would say. Um, and so... I think what James is saying is, in light of the new life God's given you, don't stall out. Keep on the journey. Keep seeking sanctification. Keep cooperating with, with the work that God wants to do in your life. And I appreciate that he just gets right down to the brass tacks and doesn't leave any ambiguity on some of that stuff. So as we read James, I want you to keep the gospel message front and center. And how I say the gospel message is that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Absolutely nothing you can do. Uh, God doesn't love you more because you're spiritually mature. 
He doesn't love um, spiritually mature people more than spiritually immature people. That's not how God works. He loves perfectly, okay? And he doesn't love you any less if you fall back or, or find yourself in an area where you're struggling. That, that has no effect of the love of God on you. So um, as we are working through James, I encourage you to keep the gospel message front and center. I'll do my best to remind us from time to time on what the gospel is. And um, we don't need to do good works so that God will love us and approve of us. We do good works because we are already loved and approved by God. Such a good news. Now, here's the deal about spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not like physical growth. Physical growth is mostly automatic. Physical growth happens to you. Ask a boy in puberty. Physical growth happens to you. But spiritual growth is not automatic. Spiritual growth requires surrender and partnership with the Holy Spirit. Um, as Dallas Willard says, um, effort is required, but it's not the same thing as earning. You know, we don't earn our spiritual maturity, but God does invite us to cooperate with him and put some effort in. So I got an assignment for you. It's a, it's a really easy assignment. Uh, let's say it's a simple assignment. It's not easy. It's hard, but it's simple. And I want you to go and make some time this week and take the two lists that I gave you and we'll have um, a PDF link in the description if you're watching this on YouTube that you can download or save to your phone. Uh, but take the two lists of the five marks of spiritual maturity versus the five marks of spiritual immaturity. Take that list, those two lists, and go and take an honest evaluation of where you are today. Okay, now, start with the five marks of maturity and tune your ear and ask God to show you where he is celebrating. I believe in, in every one of you, God is looking down and in some way, shape, or form, he's saying, well done. We are making progress. You are growing. You're not the same today as you were a year ago. I think this is really important because sometimes it's easy for people to hear the convicting word or where they need to grow because we're often very aware of our sin and shortcomings that it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you have a heavenly father who is cheering and celebrating and is doing you know, the proverbial backflips over you because he loves you so much. So begin this assignment looking for what we call the word of grace or the word of affirmation. Where is God celebrating growth and maturity in your life right now? And then have the courage to move on to the next list, which is, all right, Lord, where do you wanna work? You know, uh, shine your light. You know, which one of these things is, is pricking me? And perhaps there's things that aren't even on the list that he wants to speak to you about. That's fine. But the idea is just to kind of take kind of a baseline diagnostic to say, all right, am I stuck in neutral spiritually? Uh, am I, have I been following the Lord for 20 years, but I'm still um, an infant spiritually? You know, why is that? Uh, I want to encourage you to dig into that as we go through James over the next 12, 13 weeks. There's going to be so much practical stuff for us to learn, to rejoice in, to repent from, and I know that at the end of it, we'll all be better. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, and we thank you for um, appearing to your brother and impacting his life in such a way 
that he had some really incredible teachings to pass on, not just to those who were dispersed and scattered in the first century, but even today to those in your body who are dispersed and scattered all over the globe right now for various reasons. We just dedicate this time and this season to you. We ask that you would make us the type of people that we read about in Ephesians 4. God, we ask that you would make our church a a place of blessing, uh, a place of health, a place where you are growing. And Lord, I I just am reminded that uh, you never told us to grow your church. You said that you would grow your church and you predicted church growth. But what you asked us to do is to build and grow people. So God, I pray you would help us to be built and to grow. We just give all of this uh, to you and ask that you glorify yourself through these efforts. In Jesus' name we pray.